Now, Jesus's gospel um, obviously isn't centered on forgiveness, um, and Jesus doesn't seem to be. He's concerned about what happens after you die, um, but his, and this is where Dallas um, does some thinking about these words of Jesus, like heaven and eternal life, ones that we've all often assumed were sort of for people in the grave, um, and sort of says, you know, actually, biblically, heaven is much more of a, a here and now reality. It's more of like a, the sort of the flip side of of earth, but. Um, just sort of the, the part that's above us. Hello and welcome to the Follower Podcast, a place for honest conversations about following Jesus to the depths of his heart and the ends of the earth. I'm your host, Matthew Lewis, and I'm so glad that you have joined us. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Follower Podcast. As always, what a what a treat, man, to be in your ears today. And I hope that uh, hope that you're having a good one. Uh, we've got somebody on the podcast today. Uh, his name is Michael Stewart Rob, been known as Mike. I literally have just met him ten minutes ago. We had an interesting conversation. He helped me uh, fix every problem with followers, so it's going to be much better now. Um, I've never really met him because the man lives in Munich, Germany, but he is a friend of a friend. So if you've listened to this podcast at all, you will know Trevor Hudson's voice really well. And Trevor connected uh, Mike and I, and we had one or two emails and decided to do a podcast. So here we are. Mike, welcome to the Follower Podcast. Thank you, Matt. Hello to everyone out there. Uh, hello from Munich. Yeah. So good to have you with us. Thank you for making the time. Um, Let's let's start a little bit with you, your story. Give us a sense of who you are. So you, you live in Munich. Says a bit about your family, etc. Yeah. Um, well, I am a migrant. I've lived here for almost twenty years, but I grew up in the states, and uh, I came here rather early in life. So I've only been an adult in in Europe. Uh, in the States, I've never owned forks or paid a heating bill, anything that adults do. I've only done that over here. And so that certainly um, shaped me quite a bit living here. Um, just the the whole, yeah, mannerism. I, I'm married to a, a German. Uh, and and so there's just a, there's, a, I suppose, a now a comfort to living here that sort of initial uh this is a big cross-cultural experience is is kind of over now i feel that when i go back home and mm. sort of what is this weird place that i that i sort of know uh yeah, yeah. um as, as, as if you uh, could see me right now uh, i'm i'm kind of surrounded by books and so i'm i'm a kind of reader by by nature and um i do spend more than average for the average person time time reading and uh that's also part of my vocation as well to just be up on things to to read things well um so all the things that kind of go with with that i'm more of a contemplative kind of person uh i do sort of like being um or reading isn't the sort of thing that you you do well at a party. Um, so they're, they're sort of atmospheres that sort of reading fit fits into and others that they don't fit into all that well. Yeah. 
Really cool. I love Germany. Really one of my favorite, one of my favorite European countries I've been to. I think it's because I didn't expect a lot. I don't know mm. why my perception of Germany was kind of concrete buildings and cold weather. And then when I got there and I was like, look at these forests and look at the, it was a, it's quite beautiful, really beautiful, mm. beautiful mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I really came to enjoy it. Yeah. And, and really, Christmas and really, Oh yeah. The Christmas markets yeah. and they're, they're not, they're done right because they're sort of just part of the culture here. Totally. Yeah. 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 And so uh, that took you um, on this journey and you spoke about some vocational work that developed out of that. So tell us a little bit about what you do. I know you're a writer. We'll, we'll jump into one of the books that you've written a bit, but tell us how that's all evolved. Yeah. Um, I guess over, over time, I mentioned um, the, the idea of being a minister, working in churches. I was always very interested in how churches do function and how they how some function better than others and are more capable of helping people um and and i think for myself too i i really hoped for churches that were good for me and my participation actually helped me um as as a person as a follower of jesus and um and so it was sort of a an early question of my life is how does that, how does that work? Like what do the pastors do or not do to make things better or, or worse? What does, what does discipleship ideally look like or what, what could it look like? Um, and what sorts of traditions do we have that we need to hold on to and which ones do we need to let fall away? Um, yeah. That that was that was a very early question for me, and I think in every church that I've gone into since I was a very young man, um, that's been the leading question: um, How can I, whether I'm in charge or whether I'm just one of the people in the pew, what what could be done to sort of help this experience be a more educative experience, one where discipleship is more at the forefront, where um, people are able to overcome issues that they have, whether that's sort of healing things or sin issues that need to be overcome or just personal things that, mm. that this place can be a, a better space for that. Mm. And I mean, that's, um, that's quite well articulated. I'm wondering, um, in your earlier life, was that maybe question did you have that articulation at that point or is that sort of a clarity that's developed over time and the reason I ask is because for me I have I have quite a similar driver but when I reflect on it myself as a younger person it was more almost primal it was more more just like a felt frustration that I couldn't really put words to but over time I've started to be able to categorize some of the things I was struggling with I wonder if that's the same for you yeah I'm I'm trying to think about it uh so I think so in particularly in my, my case, I went uh, right out of uh, high school. I went to a, a school, a Christian school, where you could actually uh, study theology, study um, discipleship ministry. And, and so right from the beginning, by the time I was 19, I had professors around me who were raising these questions mm-hmm. with us. 
and raising them in an articulated form. That's and for that reason, I can't quite remember very well what it was like before what before I started discussing these things in a classroom setting, writing papers about them. Um, uh, yeah, I think one of the things that stood out to me uh, is is these these professors um, and their classrooms were so were, were different from the churches in which I grew up in. And one of the big differences was um, they seemed they, they seemed like uh, deep people. Uh, they seemed like very very calm uh, people. They they had a Christian life which was attractive and clearly like a step up from what I was capable of living. Mm. And and there was that that attraction to them as people and to their sort of more mature way of life that I, I thought, you know, I want to become like that. And how come being in church all my life or seeing other people who'd been in church all life didn't actually make them like these people. Mm. I think that's maybe the form it would have taken in sort of very rudimentary. Uh, yeah. My very basic part of my life. Yeah. Sort of seeing those people realizing this is, they really, they really are a step up and how do I get there and how do other people get there? Yeah. Yeah. And I think why I'm I'm asking that because that's helpful and instructive. I think for someone who's um, maybe hasn't had the benefit of being able to clearly articulate some of their felt frustrations, but but that's what they're sensing. They're sensing, man, my current experience of my faith is not leading me to the depths that I intuitively am desiring, and there must be another way to do this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there must, there's got to be another shape and form that brings me to a deeper place in God. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I think uh, role models, exemplars, mentors can really be very important. And we may not know them personally. And, and somebody I know we'll, we'll talk about uh, later, Dallas Willard, I never really knew personally, but he was always this kind of role model for me, an exemplar. Um, but you know that's only it only goes so far. I mean, I've had mentors or people that I looked up to, and eventually I kind of realized, yeah, this is this is kind of a bit of the wrong path. Um, not that everything that they did was was wrong, but something something's something's lacking, and it sort of led me in a direction that it would have been better if I hadn't gone in. So, mm, mm. Um, you know, we're not following other people; we're following Jesus. <laughs> Uh, so he's he's the only role model that hasn't quite led me astray, I guess. So true, and that's that's such a helpful point to make is that we tend to um, uh, we're all looking for a guru in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. eh? And so instead of just um, appreciating what we can learn from others, but then uh, our friend Trevor Hudson, he, he will always say, you know, disciples are handmade, you know, hmm. disciples are handmade and there's not, there's no one size fits all experience. And 
that's one of the things I had to, and we'll jump into Dallas as well, but one of the things I've had to come to terms with is even in some of my friendship with Trevor or my reading of Dallas or Richard Foster or any of these kinds of people, I've had to realize there's a lot of gift in all of these people who've walked this way, but I'm not them. <laughs> and that my life um, won't necessarily look like their life. And that's okay. Like yeah. I don't have to try and become a Trevor Hudson or a Dallas Willard or whoever the case is. Yeah. Actually I'm being conformed to a part of the image of this Jesus is who's the one that I'm following. And that looks different for me than it does for you. You know, would you relate to that? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I can't quite remember the full quote story. Um, but very early on, I, I encountered this story. It came, it comes out of the Jewish tradition of a, um, a, a rabbi, I suppose, I think this is right. Uh, going to heaven and realizing uh, that, that God wasn't going to say to him, you know, why were you not Moses? But why were you not? And then insert his name. Is this real person? I can't remember his name. Mm -hmm. Why were you not rabbi? So-and-so. Mm -hmm. And and I think there too, sort of realizing for me, like the real goal of my life is, is to be, is to be Mike. Michael Stewart Rob, that's 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 what I'm trying to become. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's such a liberating thing um when you come to accept that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um and I think I do think there is a fine line there between embracing the self versus self-indulgence. And you know, we can talk about all of that. But uh, someone said it this way. I can't remember where I read this, but uh if uh, we talk about dying to self all the time, yeah. But if Christ in you is the hope of glory, then there must still be some you left for Christ to be in. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So there is there is a flavor of you that's particular to you that's yeah. really important to the redemptive story of what yeah, God's doing yeah, in the yeah. world, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then this journey for you took you, like many of us actually, and people listening to this podcast, uh, into the world of Dallas Willard. And you kind of stumbled across Dallas and and then mm -hmm. ended up writing a book about the work of Dallas. So maybe tell us a bit about that journey. Right. Um, well, that began back at this university, Christian University, with these professors and one of the people that they assigned uh, for us to read was Dallas Willard. And this was really when he was... Um, still quite small as a as an author as a figure and uh, still a bit of a niche author um, so I think I was probably one of the few at that school who was actually reading his books because I really liked what I was assigned and until I went and, and I bought a couple of books and read them but I probably I couldn't have found more than five people who were also reading those books besides the professors um, so still, still pretty small, and and you know you read as a if you're kind of do ministry things if you are a reader you read all sorts of things and so I did read Dallas Willard fairly early on in life but I started reading everything anything that sort of people said was was good and the funny thing about Dallas Willard as a modern author you know he was still alive when I started reading him was 
his books never seemed to fade as I read other things. And as I read, you know, the big names, uh, the, you know, Athanasius and Calvin and um, John Wesley or whoever you think. And that, Dallas Willard's books just sort of still kept their quality. And, and I, I, I'm the sort of person, I like these books that you can sort of sip like a fine wine and, and Dallas's books can be that kind of thing. I know they're not um, sort of simple at times, but um, yeah, that's, I think that sort of this idea that somehow that they sort of had this sustaining quality um, was what kept me reading them. And from my story, this, how the book came about and all that was, uh, I kind of came to a dead end with a different research topic that I was doing. So I was in a PhD program and I came to a dead end with it, or really it just sort of lost a lot of interest. And I, I think in that sort of gap, I started reading Dallas Willard's philosophy, which most people that you meet who talk about Dallas Willard don't read. So, you know, that's what you should, you should know. People just don't read this stuff. Uh, and once probably if you read two paragraphs of it, you'll think, yeah, I know why people don't read this. It's, <laughs> unless you you kind of are in philosophy, it, it can be um, pretty confusing. Um, but I, I said, well, I'm just going to suffer my way through this and, and just try to educate myself through it. And, and, and as I got deeper into it, then I kind of know some basic philosophy stuff, you know, the Plato here and a little, Kant there or whatever and I just realized this is this is good this is this is really good this is this is better than the other stuff that I've read and if this is this good like what does that mean for the sort of more pastoral spiritual things that he's written like how do these things fit together how does a man kind of yeah, I mean, clearly he goes, he stops, he's a, he was a philosophy professor in Southern California. So he, you know, quits his philosophy class, students, you know, 18 to 25, and then he leaves and he goes to a church and he does some like Sunday school lesson or seminar or something like that. And, you know, it's all one for him. So then how does that fit together? That was, that was a bit of the big question for me that sort of, made me do, put my PhD efforts into that. And then out of that comes this, this book, um, which took 10 years to, from starting that research to actually being, you know, buyable in a, in a bookstore. That was a 10 year process. It's a 10 year process. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Talk about now, I'm not writing work. constantly full time for those 10 years, but, um, but there was a very, it was a very long research process and a very long writing process. And, and then even once you get a publisher to bite on you, it takes a while for it to actually become a physical book. Mm -hmm. Totally. And so tell us a little bit about it. It's called the kingdom among us, the gospel according yeah. to Dallas Willard. Well, what I really wanted to do was to go right to the center or what I saw was the center of Dallas Willard's theology and his, his Christian teaching. So 
that meant uh, I want to know what does he mean by the gospel of the kingdom of God? This is Hugh Bridger. Bibles know this was Jesus's main message and Dallas Willard thought it should be the main message of the church still today. So what, but what does he, what does that really mean? What does he mean? What is the kingdom of God? And, and then obviously Jesus is still pretty important. Um, so what is, who is Jesus? What, how does he come to save us? What is his part in the whole plan of salvation um, from you know, it's beginnings in the mind of the Trinity until it's completion. So what, what does that incarnational moment, Jesus is walking around in sandals, uh, talking about this kingdom of God thing. What does that, what does that do? And all according to Dallas Willard. Uh, yeah, it's, I do it in a, in a different way than if you read some theology, it's different than what you'd find in other uh, theologians. What I decided to do was to sort of tell that story from the perspective of the disciples who were first there with Jesus. How did they first understand that message of Jesus at the very beginning? Because they do, and they we all agree that when they agree to leave their nets or whatever it is, their tax collector's booth, that they, they, they understood something. They understood a bit of who Jesus was and a bit of what he was saying. And so what was that sort of rudimentary gospel there? Um, because I just, it's what had to have been genuine in some, on some level. But then obviously their understanding grows. They understand more of who Jesus is, more of what he's teaching about uh obviously he he keeps he keeps going and you see that he kind of starts to separate out certain people that understand more kind of get even more teaching and and so that's the story of of the book sort of how they grow in their understanding of the gospel and their understanding of jesus um up to the point where they sort of realize this is this is god with us or you know probably Jesus was already ascended by that point, and they really realized, oh, we were, we were walking with God incarnate there. Um, but obviously, that changes that changes things of how they were understanding what Jesus's main message was and what the gospel was. Yeah. If you had to, um, if you were able to. Uh, when, when we talk about this gospel according to Dallas Willard or the gospel that the first disciples would have understood, mm. how in your mind is that different than maybe we would say the popular gospel of our time? The thing that, that a vast majority of Christian people, particularly in the Western world, have heard. What, what are yeah. the key differences? Well, I think there actually are a, a number of gospels that are heard in churches. Um, I think for Protestants, uh, the gospels, uh, the gospel can revolve around uh, getting into heaven after you die. And the idea is that the reason why you might not get into heaven after you die is that your sins aren't forgiven. 
And so how is it that um, God accomplishes that? How is it that God accomplishes forgiveness so that you can go to heaven after you die? Um, although I think that you'd walk into a, more and more churches today, Protestant churches, and not quite hear that very quickly, which is interesting. Um, maybe not for the better. Uh, that, <laughs> but um, now Jesus's gospel um, obviously uh, it doesn't have isn't centered on forgiveness. Um, and Jesus doesn't seem to be um, terribly, I mean, he's concerned about what happens after you die, um, but his, and this is where Dallas um, does some thinking about these words of Jesus, like heaven and eternal life, ones that we've all often assumed were sort of for people in the grave. Um and sort of says, you know, actually, biblically, heaven is much more of a, a, a here and now reality. It's more of like a the sort of the flip side of of Earth, but um, just sort of the the part that's above us. Mm. And the eternal life thing is more of a, if you read the scriptures, certainly looks like more of a quality of life rather than a time period. You know, the sort of after death time period, more of a this eternal life, he will often point to John 17, 3 and talk about uh, this is eternal life that you know uh, the Father and the one who he has sent. And so you see there, oh, that's not talking about the time after you die. That's talking about something that could happen to you now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you start to think about, well, then what was Jesus's message really about this kingdom of god is at hand bit or the kingdom of heaven is at hand as matthew's gospel sometimes put it puts it and uh and so it it certainly includes what might happen to you after you die but uh it's it certainly includes what's happening to you now before you die and forgiveness i mean jesus has a lot to say about forgiveness and clearly that's a that has a role to play. Um, and clearly Jesus's cross and resurrection have a, a role to play in what he was doing. Um, but they they play a role in, in the whole. And for some reason they don't, um, in Jesus's message, don't seem to be at, at the core. Um, which is an interesting thing too. You know, it takes Jesus, I don't know, at least two years before he tells these people who are falling around that he was going to die. Uh, so what's that about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love those uh, tensions that you've pulled there. I, I found in my journey, I grew up in sort of a, well, I actually grew up in quite a nominal Christian family experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a radical encounter with God at around the age of 20 that sort of thrust me into ministry land, which I would say was pretty typical what you've described um believe in jesus pray the prayer when you die you go to heaven our job is to is to save souls get as many people into heaven as possible etc cetera, etc cetera. um i think my felt frustration with that started to rise as what i've come to understand now at least in my understanding of how this all works was probably just the grace of god maturing me 
Mm. But uh, so mm. that, not that anything was wrong or broken, but mm. just as I went through my journey, um, I, I love what N.T. Wright says. They someone asked him N.T. Uh, N.T. Wright. They don't call him that. Tom, how much do we need to know about all of this? Like, not all of us can read in Greek and Hebrew when we have our morning devotion, you know. Mm. And he said, he said, well, to begin, you need to know something about Jesus, something about the cross, something about forgiveness, etc. Uh, and that's probably enough to get you started. But then he says, but if that's authentic, that will never be enough for you. Mm. right? Because you'll, mm-hmm. you will, mm-hmm. it will propel you into this journey of maturing and revelation where ultimately the things you started with aren't enough to keep you going on the journey. You start, there's a depth, there's a weight that starts to develop in you and you need something more substantial to stand on. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that mm-hmm. was sort of my experience where I started to come up against a wall of my own, um, paradigms around faith and what this is all about and then i Mm. did some studies myself um actually around missional leadership which is so interesting because it's kind of my journey's gone in a very different direction but Mm. within all that started to discover dallas willard Mm. and i have not in any way read the way you have read and so i think actually like a lot of people i've spoken to since uh i think i probably only skimmed the very surface of what dallas was alluding to and so some of my desires kind of hitched onto his ideas. And quite quickly, I found, which is also part of my personality, I went to the opposite extreme and everything became about here and now. Everything mm. was about the kingdom of God is here and now. And mm. almost mm. like this, you know, what they call in the theological space, like a, an overrealized eschatology. Everything was happening now. And what happened mm. when we die became completely irrelevant. Mm. And it was all here and now, you know. Mm. Um, but then, and this has been a really interesting part of my recent journey, when I, when my dad died, he died. Mm. So my dad went through this, this period where he was quite sick. Then he got very sick for about a year. And I walked with him through that period with my brothers and he died. And, and that was such a formative experience of grief for me where I understood maybe for the first time in a very palpable way, the value of having a hope anchored beyond the grave. Mm. <laughs> that that, mm. that is so important actually existentially mm. <laughs> right mm. it, it was so it, and so it, i think it rose that up again in me and i feel like i found a healthier balance now which mm. is to say there's a both andness about it and mm. and i do think um culturally in terms of the gospel that's been dominant maybe in the last i don't know 30 40 years there's been an overemphasis on pray the prayer to get to heaven when you die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we can move to an overcorrection. Mm-hmm. You know? But mm-hmm. I think at least as I continue to read Dallas and others, I think there's a healthy balance in the middle, which is the now mm-hmm. and not yet. I don't know what mm-hmm. your thoughts are on some of that. Oh, that's, um, that's really good. And it reminds me of a few things from my early life that were very important to me. Um, and uh, things that I got from reading Dallas Willard, uh, and listening to Dallas Willard, which is, uh, I hope that your listeners know that there is a lot, way more than you would ever want to listen to (laughs) from Dallas Willard available online. Uh, and it's easier to get into than, than the books. Um, but nobody, nobody died that I know of although there was one there was sort of a couple in our in our church and they had been um 
missionaries of a sort in Alaska, and they were um, at least seemed very sort of saintly to me. And but he he had cancer, and he I got to visit them kind of in some of the last months of his life, and uh, and just had a wonderful conversation with them. And then, uh, well, actually, even before he died, somebody gave them a copy of Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy and said, read the last chapter, because you need to get ready for what your future is going to be like, if you aren't already ready. And, and maybe it was that, uh, I don't know what it was, but, well, I know that there was another piece to it. And I, I, but I just, I started to think about my own death, the short years that I had on this earth. And I mean, I'm 22. It's not really a typical thought for 22 year olds, unless perhaps they've had somebody die who's close to them. But I think what it was for me too, was I was preparing to go and give my life to this work as a cross-cultural servant and that meant a lot of sacrifices for me. It meant giving up a lot of my relationships, very good relationships with my pals, um, living at a great distance from my family, uh, living on a pretty meager salary. Um, I know for some people, maybe going into the ministry is maybe a step up from where they uh, came from. For me, it would have been a step down um, in terms of what I was, my quality of life. And, and, and things I knew that I just wasn't going to be able to do, like everything that I was going to give up in order to do this kind of life really kind of started to overwhelm me and just realizing this was, this was a, going to be a sacrifice. And I think that's where this idea of the continuity of this life with the next really became very important to me. Mm. And this idea that that anything good in this life was going to be a part of the next. Mm. Because w- why wouldn't a good God do it that way? Why would he sort of say, well, that was good, but we don't need that anymore. We'll just throw that on the cosmic mm. trash heap. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so I just really didn't have to worry about giving my life to something that was going to result in, in less, less enjoyment, less appreciation of good, less power, less, I could kind of freely give up more of my life to that because of this sort of sense of God's, God's, God's got me. I mean, I'm all right. I'm gonna, gonna live forever. And, uh, really not going to miss out by doing this kind of thing. I love that word continuity that you used, and I love how in the scriptures they describe um, death in Christ as falling asleep. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that's such a healthy uh, paradigm because sometimes even in the Christian mind, you know, uh, we profess belief in Jesus, but we're still operating on a previous, you know, our iOS hasn't updated yet. And so we got this like Mm -hmm. other operating system going on inside of us. Mm -hmm. 
and our conceptions of the stark contrast between this this side of eternity and the other side of eternity are like are like unhealthfully separated. And mm. I know, I mean, the other side is incredible and glorification, and I get all of that. But there's a beautiful continuity. Uh, yeah, we were talking about just before we started recording the artistic stuff that some of they're starting to stir in me, and I think it's Makoto Fujimura who talks about the creative act being a collaboration with God in the now that gives the raw material for the construction of the later, you know? So in some yeah. way on this side of eternity, I'm cultivating the gardens that will walk in forever on the other side of eternity. The stuff I do yeah. now matters, you know? Yeah. 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 And I think our, our, our theology of art and artists is changing. Uh, if you have a sense of where, Christian history has gone and where we are now. Um, there are periods of Christian history where uh, people who had done art vocationally were might have been accused of a kind of worldliness or a focus on things of this life, whereas the things of the other world would have been much more important. They really should have put down their paintbrushes and focused on something else. Whereas I think today we're realizing that that's, that um, creativity is going to be a part of our future forever. And, and there are some people whose position in life allows them to get into those sorts of things already. Mm -hmm. And there are others of us, um, myself included, who you know, get to play their 15 minutes of electric guitar a day <laughs> yeah. and we'll have to sort of wait until they really can kind of pour themselves into something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Man, we could keep going. I, I want to touch a bit on a few of the other things you're involved in. Yeah. Uh, Sanctus. Tell us a little bit about Sanctus. That's kind of, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, it's like sort of your bread and butter. That's what you do with your days. Yeah. Uh, it's one of two things. So I'm, I'm, I describe myself as a writer and a nonprofit director of Sanctus. Okay. Uh, so the writing thing is something I try to sort of always keep space for. Um, Sanctus is a, an European Institute for Theology and Spiritual Formation. Um, obviously, hearing that in a European context, we have plenty of theology here on this continent. Uh, spiritual formation is more of the lacking element. Um, but we do want a, a spiritual formation that is integrated into um, well-thought-out theology, because if, if it isn't, if it's not integrated into just what people are preaching on Sundays, what people are learning in seminaries or in their small groups or whatever, then it's not going to go very far. So we do need that integration bit. Um, it probably sounds a lot more exciting and bigger than it actually is. Uh, but some of that is just where we are now on the European continent. Um, we just, we just don't have, this isn't, it's not a buzzword here. It's not spiritual formation doesn't get you an audience um, in churches. Uh, it's, it's, just very embryonic, very small. 
And so a lot of what we do is just try to reach out to leaders um, across the continent and find people who, uh, who, who do have a sense of what this is about. Perhaps they're experts in some way, perhaps they don't even really need us, um, but a lot of these people are rather isolated in their context, mm -hmm. in their ministry. Um, they don't really know more than a handful of people who are interested in spiritual formation. And by that word, I mean, let's think of that word as maybe the science or the knowledge of, of growing in Christ. How does it happen? Yeah. Um, what's the kind of more, yeah, there, there are people who know how that works and there are people who don't. So what is it the peop that people who know how it works know? That's, mm -hmm. that's what I'm, I'm talking about there. And that's the sort of knowledge that we want to just pass around in Europe as widely as we can yeah. and, and work with people who are already doing really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I would just really relate to what you're saying. I am, um, I've done a little bit of work in Europe myself and Germany where you are, but mm. also um, more recently, a friend of mine, he's in Sweden actually. And um, we were talking about spiritual formation and he's been a part of, hello, our realtor, if you're listening to this, uh, he's been a part of follower and uh, he's been part of our focuses. And he was telling me there is no word or phrase for spiritual formation in Swedish. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't translate. And he right. was actually saying, just from a missional perspective, he was saying, if he, if he walks in the front door with conversations of spiritual formation, that is an unhelpful barrier to entry for him. So, mm. so we've been talking a lot about, well, just decode it. Like you don't, don't, mm. you don't have to lead with the language. We can just yeah. talk about discipleship, but then yeah. animate that idea of discipleship with something more holistic, you know? Yeah. And I think that's yeah. definitely been some of my experience in, in the European context is that in some senses it's unknown, but in some mm. senses it's actually resisted. There are some yeah. perspectives within the European world, which are quite strongly almost opposed to the idea of, of yeah. formation. I don't know. Would you agree with that? I think that's correct. I think it's a bigger problem than just we're lacking the right terminology. And what you're saying is, is, is a case. There's a funny thing about formation in English. Somehow it, it comes across so inviting. Mm. Whereas if we used a word like education, Suddenly, it doesn't sound so right. inviting. <laughs> you don't feel, like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, give me more of that. Um, so there's there are some some barriers there, but that but even even if you dismiss the words and you just look for the reality, just look for it's just not there. Um, mm. Yeah, mm. and and then sometimes you know there are words for discipleship and being disciple. But they've sometimes been, they've been abused, or they have a very clear meaning that goes in a very different direction than what you might be trying to help people with. And so, um, sometimes using the the available words just doesn't wow, doesn't help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I I find that in English too. I don't know what it's like in in South Africa, but sometimes I will tell people I'm interested in discipleship. Yeah. And they'll start talking, and immediately I realize, no, I, that was the wrong word to use. Totally, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes I'll be like, people, people say, "What do you do?" And I was like, "Community of Spiritual Formation." 
And then they'll go, what is spiritual formation? And then I'll start to explain it and they'll go, oh, so discipleship. And I'll go, uh, my response is typically yes, but not all discipleship is created equal. Like mm. there are some ways, so it is discipleship. In a perfect mm. world, these, these things wouldn't be separated. But mm. unfortunately, because of what discipleship has become in some circles, there is a necessary differentiation because mm. we're not just talking about you know, that world of thought, there's something else that we're something, the way I would say something that feels more holistic, more robust, more integrated mm -hmm. into the human experience than simply uh, a Bible study. You know, I don't, I don't yep. know, you know, without, I don't want to be cynical and curse the darkness here, but that's kind of what I, I feel. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. And that flows quite nicely into the last thing I wanted to touch because you have put together a documentary. So, I mean, you're quite a busy man. You're doing a lot of things. You put this documentary alone together. Tell us about yeah. this. The documentary is a project that, well, the first thing that we did was we actually hosted a, a retreat for ministers in Europe. Um, it was a retreat, but the, the goal was to bring together, just like we were saying before, bring together people interested in spiritual formation who could learn from each other. Uh, I, we did try to invite more young people and, um, yeah, just try to get find ways to get them into the same room rather than in separate countries. And, and we did it in a retreat setting, which was, which was really good. I think we'll try to do much more of that. Try it. We, we took away people's uh, cell phones. We told them in advance we were going to do that, but just have a space where we weren't sort of connected with the outside world and, and then had lots of silence or just, you know, times when you don't really need to sort of impress anybody. You can just sort of go off on your own and do whatever you want to do. Um, but I we do this stuff on, on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. And, and so I've got cameras and microphones and equipment that I just thought, well, we'll just bring a camera. And I've been learning about documentary films. And we, I just thought, well, we'll just, instead of just shooting some stuff, we'll just sort of put it in a documentary format. Um, and, uh, and it turned out better than I thought it would. I kind of thought maybe it'll be a nice little promotional piece for the next uh, gathering, but it turned out to have um, a nice story, a nice uh, a nice arc uh, to it, and I just thought this 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 is worth treating as a short film, as a documentary, and presenting it to the world in that way. Um, so that's it. Um, you can watch the trailer now on our on our homepage as well as on our YouTube channel. And that will not only give you a, a, a taste for what the retreat was like, but hopefully also a taste for what it would be like to watch a film mm. on, on that topic. And your yeah. thought, as I understand it, is you're going to kind of take this documentary around, do screenings, and then yeah. have almost like a Q, Q and R after that? Yeah, that's right. Um, so just in... in at least for the initial phase here of how we release this to the world, 
I think it would be better to just get into a room with people, show them the film, and then be able to have a chat with them afterwards or, I don't know, talk, talk about the issues. Those can be virtual rooms as well as physical rooms. I prefer physical rooms, but uh, I don't know, not easy for me to get to South Africa. So mm-hmm. um, maybe maybe we do a virtual room there and just just talk about what some of the issues in the film and how what the monks have done in the past could be something that we can bring into the 21st century and bring into mostly Protestant sort of scenarios and uh, and see how, yeah, maybe maybe this could be a cure for some of the the modern ills we have, or maybe even some of the, the Protestant ills that we have. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So do, uh, yeah, if this intrigues you now, go find that that trailer and um and that's also a way that you can figure out how to contact me and um find a way set up a way to to see the film for you or for your church or whatever yeah so we'll have all those links in the show notes guys so that's uh, what's the website sanctus our website is sanctus.institute slash and then the film uh is slash alone together yeah yeah so i went and had a look at the website and yeah, it's all pretty self-explanatory. You'll find everything you need there. So the the link will be in the show notes. Go have a look. And then they can find uh, the book uh, anywhere there's books, really. Hey, Amazon. Anywhere there's books. Things. I apologize that uh, look around for a good price, um, but the, the publisher in the U.S. has it for $49, which I know is is a level where you, you pause before you buy a book mm-hmm. that costs that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, I don't have any control of, over it, but hopefully one day it'll come out as a paperback and then we can put it on more more people's shelves than it currently yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate the conversation. And um, everybody else, thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode of the Follow-Up Podcast. That's all for this episode of the Follow-Up Podcast. If you found this helpful, please consider liking, sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on the podcast. It it helps us get these conversations in other people's ears. You can also give a once-off donation or ongoing monthly support to make more conversations like this possible by visiting www.wearefollower.com. Until next time, friends, may you follow Jesus to the depths of his heart and to the ends of the earth.